John 13, verse 18. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time of year and the change of season and the change of weather and an opportunity to celebrate the gift of your son. And Lord, there's a a lot of commercialism. There's a lot of busyness and we don't want to lose sight of you, Jesus. We want to draw near to you. God, I pray that you would break through all of the distractions in our hearts and our lives, the busyness, and that you'd speak to us tonight. Jesus says, you instruct us on a heart that's not troubled. We pray that we would experience that. Whether we know this passage well, or it's the first time that we've heard it taught, that we would really enter into the truths that you have for us. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The scene of John 13 is Jesus with the disciples at the Last Supper. At the Last Supper, he instituted communion that the bread represents his broken body, that the cup represents his shed blood. Then he did something that was mind-blowing, and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. This was a common occurrence when you would come in from a busy full day walking the dirty streets of Jerusalem. You would have your feet washed. But what was mind-blowing is it wasn't the servant of the house, the slave of the house. It was none other than Jesus Christ, the, the King of Kings. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. And if you remember from a few weeks back when Kent instructed us through this passage, is that Jesus told us that we would be blessed if we followed his example, that he gave us a an example to follow. So how are we doing in that? How are we doing in getting messy and dirty and serving others and putting other people's needs before our own? But Christ says that we'll have a blessed life as we do that. The end of chapter 13, and then we're going to go into chapter 14, focuses on one person that's at this feast. You guessed it, it's Judas. Jesus washed his feet as well. So let's look at verse 18 of chapter 13. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus now hones in upon Judas and he quotes from Psalms 41. When also David was betrayed by someone who was close to him, his counselor, Ahithophel. So amazing that David, so many prior years prior, the king would be betrayed. And now the ultimate betrayal of Judas, Jesus is saying, one that eats out of this cup with me is going to put his heel against me. He's going to reproach me. He's going to betray me. And Jesus is telling the disciples this so that they'll believe after it takes place. In Revelation 19, we find that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. God foretells future events so we know that he's God. Some people get a little bit uncomfortable when they hear me say, well, we're having a prophecy service, a prophecy update, looking at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and I don't know about that, and I'll sit that one out and those kind of things, but two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy. Two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy. And here Jesus is saying, I'm telling you beforehand, so when it happens, you'll believe. And that will register with your heart and with your mind. In verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, he who rece- most assuredly I say to you, he who receives, whomever I send, receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is mind-blowing and it's really encouraging. Because if you receive somebody who Christ has sent, then you're receiving Christ. 
and you're also receiving the Father. So you think about maybe some of these missionaries that we support as they come back in from the field and you receive them, you're receiving Christ and you're receiving the Father. Maybe you know someone that's reaching out in the name of Jesus Christ here in Colorado Springs in their neighborhood and their workplace and you receive them. You're receiving Jesus Christ and you're receiving the Father. Really causes our lens to look differently at the messengers of Christ. In verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. It always stands out when Christ is troubled in his spirit. He's heartbroken over the fact that Judas is going to betray him. Think about the three years of Judas walking with Christ. Christ's intent for Judas to get it, for him to follow Christ. And now he knows Judas is going to betray him. I bet most of you, if not all of you, have experienced betrayal from the closest source. And it hurts, doesn't it? And it can be one of the most difficult wounds to heal from, and Christ knows what that feels like. In these hours of leading up to his crucifixion, he's going to experience this rejection from his inner circle, and his spirit's troubled. In verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. In Matthew 22, it says that each of the disciples asked the question, is it I? And that causes us to see the humility in the disciples. They didn't go, oh, it's going to be Peter. He's always the big bragger. You know, he's always got his foot in his mouth. I, I think Peter's going to be the one who's going to betray. Or, you know, James and John, they're always arguing over who can be the greatest. That's going to come back to bite them. So I'm sure it's going to be James or it's going to be John. They each saw in their own heart that they had the capacity to betray Christ. And for us to have that own humility in our own lives, when there's a warning about sin that we go, is it me? God, is, is my heart in the wrong place? And am I capable of doing that? Verse 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And it's important to understand how they would sit at this last supper when they would have a meal together. It's not sitting at a table or, or sitting on couches like we do in a Western culture, but it's, it's more sitting down on these cushions and you would lean against each other. And we know that John is the one that's leaning upon, uh, upon Jesus Christ here because it's whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Throughout this gospel, this is how John refers to himself. If you're looking for identity, that's the place in Jesus Christ. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask him who it was of whom he spoke. Can you picture this? Here Peter's like throwing a little bit of bread at John, you know, getting John's attention. Psst, psst, ask him who it is. I want to know who it is. You know, who's going to betray Christ? Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I I give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Satan entered him. Maybe one of the most terrifying verses in all of scripture. He becomes possessed by the devil at this point as he continues in the betrayal of Jesus Christ. Verse 28. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. 
For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus said to him, buy those things which are, we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. So they didn't understand when Jesus said, what you do, do it quickly. They didn't put the pieces together. Judas had the money box. He was the one who made sure the finances were taken care of. So maybe he's paying for this dinner and it's time for him to foot the bill. But Judas knew and Jesus knew. Jesus goes on to address the rest of the disciples. So when he'd gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Five times in two verses, the word glorify is mentioned. And Jesus is referring to his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. The glory of God is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. Look back to verse 1 of chapter 13. I just want us to be reminded of this. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he would depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you carefully study the Gospels, Jesus is always referring to his time or his hour, and he'd often say, my hour has not come. But now he says, this is the hour. This is the time. This is the moment the Son is going to be glorified by the Father. And how is the Son glorified? Through the suffering of the cross. And how is God glorified in our lives? Sometimes we sing, God, I desire for you to be glorified. I want to live for your glory. Many times that means that we go through suffering because it's through suffering that our lives stand out to be something different from somebody who doesn't know Christ. We look at all of Scripture and the glory of God, and there's definitely these amazing high points of God's glory. Creation, Moses and the burning bush, the Psalms that express the, the holiness of God. But all of that is leading up to when Jesus Christ is crucified for us. Because we have God's power, his majesty, his justice, but then it meets his mercy and his grace, his love, where God dies for us so that we could receive forgiveness. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that reveals the glory. Verse 33, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, listen to how Jesus addresses these men. Little children. It's this term of love. It's this term of endearment. It's the ultimate father. It's the ultimate mentor. He's saying, I'm going to depart from you guys. He's trying to prepare them for his ascension with the father. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, is that new? Is it new to love one another? That's the message of the law. So let's keep reading. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. The commandment to love one another is not new. What's new is the way to do it, the way that Jesus Christ has loved. He's taken love to a deeper level. He's shown it to us. He's embodied it. And how does Jesus love? Sacrificially and unconditionally. 
So this boils down the Christian life for us to love God and to love one another as Jesus loved us. And that's what we're always aspiring to. And please read ahead for next week's study in John 15, because that's how we get to this place of love. It's not on our own. It's by abiding in Jesus. It's abiding in the vine. And as we're abiding in the vine, then we bear this fruit of love. But this is to be the focus of our Christian life, is loving the way that Christ has loved us. Verse 35, by this, all will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. So the way that people can see that we're the followers of Jesus Christ is not how many verses we can memorize and rattle off, which has its great value, not our deep level of theology. It's our love for one another. Bar none, that's what God says, identifies us as the disciple of Jesus Christ of how we treat other Christians, how we treat each other inside of this family, Rocky Mountain Calvary, how we interact with other churches inside of our community and being for them and not against them, having a spirit to compliment and not compete as we're laboring in the same field. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, Peter too will be able to have eternal life. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Do you think Peter meant this? Do you think he was sincere? Absolutely. Peter knows something that's happening. He can't figure out all of the details, but he wants to be with Christ. He has this intense desire to be wherever Christ is. And he says, I'll lay down my life. I'll I'll die for you. But yet he didn't factor in his own weakness. And we look at verse 38. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? He asks him that question. Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. As the day would begin, as the sunrise comes, the rooster crows. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, Peter, you're going to deny me. This is mind-blowing to Peter. He thinks this is beyond possibility. Here's the lesson for us. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. And Peter, he thinks he stands. We also put together what's taking place from the other gospel accounts Jesus told Peter to pray along with the other disciples and Peter was found sleeping. Temptation was at his door. Sleeping when he was supposed to be praying, he underestimated his own sinful tendencies. And pride does that. So when we get to this place, when we put ourselves on a pedestal and we'll say, I'll die for you, Lord. Well, we'd like to think that, but when reality comes down to it, who knows how we would respond in the moment? We may have a Peter response, and thankfully God's love is unconditional towards us. So instead of a prideful response, a response of humility. Is there any sin that you think you're above? Maybe you see somebody and you go, how could they? How how disgusting. How how appalling. They call themselves a, a Christian. And when we put ourselves in that place, we become the first candidate for that sin because it's pride. And we realize, oh Lord, I know my heart and I know if it's not for your grace and staying close to you and walking with you, there's not any sin in your word that I'm not capable of. And that's the understanding that Peter was gaining through his failure. 
putting himself up in that place of pride. Ultimately, he does deny the Lord. In John 21, in future study, we'll see God graciously restore him. Now, you guys ready for this? We're going to go through all of chapter 14 here in about a half hour. So, Lord willing. But here's the exhortation, and then there's several reasons why Jesus gives this exhortation. There's seven reasons if you're taking notes. So here's what he encourages us in. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus speaks to his disciples in a moment where they would be troubled. He's saying, I'm leaving. You can't come. This is going to cause a troubled heart. Then he speaks what's almost impossible. And he says, don't let don't allow your heart to be troubled. And troubled is this inward commotion. And unfortunately, our hearts too often are in this place of inward commotion. Agreed? And just as it's applicable to the disciples, it's applicable to us. And we're stewards of our hearts. Let not your heart be troubled. We may not like it. It makes us uncomfortable. But I get to choose the direction of my heart on any given day. And Proverbs says, keep your heart because out of it flows the issues of life. And if we can focus on and receive these truths of faith, we can allow the Lord to move us from a place of a troubled heart to a heart that's filled with his peace. But the conduit of experiencing his peace is believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust. The disciples are going to go down a road that they don't see the end of. Imagine them watching Jesus Christ be crucified upon the cross, their Savior. And as God leads us in a journey of faith, we have to trust. And as we trust and believe in his promises, the peace of God flows into our hearts. So verse 2 gives us our first reason to not have a troubled heart if you're taking notes, and it's that we're going to heaven. It says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. My Father's house has many mansions. That word literally mansions is dwellings. So it's not that there's all these different mansions in heaven. The idea is God's got one big house. It's the Father's house, and we each have our mansion inside of it. We each have our dwelling place inside of it, our luxury apartment inside of it, but we're all dwelling inside of the Father's house. Now that's a big house. And Jesus is saying, I'm leaving you because I've got a job to do and I'm pre preparing a place for you, for you personally. And we think about the glory of creation that we experience and I hope you get to experience it. Colorado is a great state to be able to live in and get out into the mountains, experience the change of seasons. Even the snow, if you don't like the snow, there's something about it. Each snowflake has a different pattern that's been placed there by God. And God did a great job with creation. Agreed? Would we agree on that? But this is just the smallest foreshadowing compared to heaven, and he's preparing a place for you. I think that the Lord is doing specific things for specific people. I, I recently did a memorial uh, service for a gal in, in our church, and her favorite color was purple. And I was thinking, you know, in her dwelling place, God's got to have it decked out in purple. I mean, I even heard she had a purple dining room, and I go, Lord, I bet you just have that for her. I've done memorial services of guys that love to fish, you know, and I'm thinking God's probably got the ultimate fishing trip planned for these guys when they get to be home with the Lord. And because of this eternal home that God's preparing for us, 
we can allow our hearts to not be troubled. Jesus doesn't say, don't allow your heart to be troubled because this is how this life is going to go. This life's going to be filled with tribulation. It's going to be difficult, but we look forward to our future home. We look forward to that future that God has for every believer, and that provides hope for our hearts. In verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So it's an incredible place with an incredible Savior. What good is the place if you're not with the ones that you love. Maybe you've been in a beautiful location in the world, but your family's not with you. Something's missing, right? So it's this amazing place that God has prepared for us, but the best part about this place is Christ has received us unto himself. We're the bride of Christ, and he's taken us as his bride, and we're entering into the fullness of that relationship. It's this hope that was the anchor for Job's soul in the midst of his trial. Job 19, he says, This one thing I know, with this flesh I shall see God. Church, brother and sister in Christ tonight, maybe that's where you're at. Life's not going well. It's difficult. It's a challenge. It stinks. can think of a lot of other adjectives, maybe, to describe it. Be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. He's prepared a place for you, and he's going to receive you unto himself. It may be the rapture of the church. We're all hoping for that. I'm be great if the rapture happened before Christmas. That would be wonderful anytime, you know. But if the rapture doesn't happen, God has a moment prepared for us to be with him. We hold on to that. Verse four, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? One thing we learn from the disciples is it's good to ask questions. If you don't understand, ask questions of the Lord. And Thomas is like, I don't get this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've been studying with us through the Gospel of John, the I am statement stands out. The statement of deity, there's seven in the Gospel of John. This is the sixth I am statement. Jesus says three things about himself. I am the way. He doesn't say I'm a way. He says, I'm the way. It's exclusive. It's narrow. It's emphasized. No one comes to the Father except through me. I appreciate narrow thinking. I think you do too at particular times. When you take a flight from Denver to wherever you're going, or Colorado Springs, you want narrow thinking from the pilot. I don't want the pilot taking suggestions from everybody else on how to fly the plane. If I were to have an open heart surgery, I want narrow thinking when it comes to the pilot. For goodness sakes, even if I'm getting a filling on my teeth, I don't want the the dentist to be going, so what tooth do you want me to work on? I mean, what works for you? No, it's not what works for me. You're the dentist, you know? I'm paying you for narrow thinking. And when it comes to God, if he's not the only way to salvation, then that doesn't make him greater than any of these false gods. And he doesn't apologize for it. He just states it, I am the way. And we also appreciate that Jesus doesn't describe a way. He doesn't say do A, B, C, D. If you work hard enough, if you do it well enough, you'll have eternal life. He says, I'm the way. You believe in me. You trust in me. You hold on to me. And he's the one that safely causes us to arrive into eternal life. I am the truth. 
not any truth will go, but there's specific, absolute truth in Jesus Christ. I appreciate this. He's the life. He's the life. Maybe you feel like something's missing tonight. Life's found in Jesus. Not in more money, not in better jobs, not in faster cars. Man, enjoy the blessings that God gives. But life is as good as there's fellowship with Jesus Christ. In verse 7, we get now to our second reason for not having a troubled heart. It's because we know the Father right now. So number two, we know the Father right now. If you've known me, you have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe in me, and I and believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. What's Jesus leaving the disciples with? A knowledge of the Father. This is what he came to do. He came to bring the disciples, you and me, all who will believe into relationship with the Father. So Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going to receive you again to myself But in the meantime, you know the Father. Because as you've seen me, you have seen the Father. For some reason, a lot of times, we don't have difficulty with Jesus because of who we know him to be in the Gospels. But we have a hard time relating to our Heavenly Father. But Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the express image of the Father. Jesus is bringing us into relationship with the Father. Now, I know that this is difficult. This is going to be hard for for some to hear. But there's something that's very special about a relationship with a father. And if you never have had that, or it's a dysfunctional relationship with the father, it exposes a great amount of pain. And sometimes people have a difficult time relating with their heavenly father because of the pain of their earthly father. But look at Jesus. And look at who he is and how he points to the Heavenly Father. And what Jesus is encouraging us in is you relate to the Father. You know his love. You understand his character. And you can run to him as a dad and enjoy that relationship. Receive that comfort. Receive that correction if needed. Probably one of the most important things in our Christian life is understanding that God's our Father. When Jesus taught us to pray, He taught us like this, Father, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the relationship that we're brought into. If you study the Old Testament, this is not how the nation of Israel addressed God. They addressed God as Adonai, Yahweh. God is huge. He's awesome. He's inspiring, which he's all of those things. And Jesus brings us into that personal relationship where God's our Father. If your heart's troubled tonight, the place to go is to your Heavenly Father. That's why our hearts can be in a place of peace. The third thing, if you're still with me, is we've got a job to do in verse 12. Number three, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me that the works I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Amazing when you read that. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, 
the works I do, you're going to do even greater works. How could that be? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to find that Jesus is going to give the Holy Spirit. Stay tuned. This is our Through the Bible study. We're going from Genesis to Revelation. What comes after John? The book of Acts. And we're going to see these powerful works that God did through the apostles, through the Holy Spirit. How does this apply to our lives and not allowing our hearts to be troubled? Is God wants to use you. That's the heart of verse 12. God's got a plan for you. He's got great works that he wants to do in and, and through your, your life. If you're a sports fan, you probably remember the, the glory days of basketball with Michael Jordan. Wasn't necessarily a Michael Jordan fan, but I appreciated his ability to play the game. And when he would score a basket, nobody praised the Wilson basketball, the, the piece of pigskin. Everybody's like, man, he is phenomenal. And look at the way that he can jump and sticks his tongue out and slams the ball and all those, those, those kind of things. And it was never about the ball. It was always about the ability of Michael Jordan. See, and it's not about us. It's not about our ability or inability. It's about our availability to the master. God's the one who has the ability. And we're the basketball. And we put ourselves in his hands and he doesn't miss. This is when the Christian life gets exciting is when we begin to step out in faith. The fourth reason our heart's not troubled is because we have the privilege of prayer. And whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We've talked about this a lot. Hopefully you're well grounded in this by this point. But to pray in the name of Jesus is not to pray for all of our selfish desires, but it's to pray things in accordance with his character and nature, who we know Jesus Christ to be. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. When we're praying for the lost in the name of Jesus, we can be confident that he hears. What challenges me is, am I praying in the name of Jesus? Jesus says, this is a reason for your heart not to be troubled. If you're praying in my name, I'm going to hear and grant you those requests. It's a great privilege of prayer that God has given to us. The fifth reason that our hearts are not troubled is because we have the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus is very simple, but very practical, very right on, very pointed. We can say all day that we love Jesus, but if we keep his commands, that's evidence of the fact that, that we love him. I think of a husband and wife relationship. A spouse can say, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, which is great and it's needed. The words are important, but the actions are paramount. You know, if a husband's saying, oh, I love you, I love you, and then he's out cheating on his wife, that doesn't mean anything. And it's the same way with God. If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. What are his commandments? Love God, love our neighbor as ourself. Thankfully, verse 16 follows verse 15, because if we're going to love and keep God's commandments the way that he intends, we're going to need help. And Jesus says, I'm going to pray to the Father, and then the Father's going to give the helper. And helper literally means the one who comes along beside to help. Comes along beside to help. Maybe some circumstances in life come to mind where you've needed help. Maybe it's been as simple as learning how to cook a new dish. I enjoy cooking, and for me to learn to cook something new, I can 
kind of stumble along in a recipe, but if I watch someone else do it, man, it sure helps. And we have this, this coach, this mentor, the Spirit of God that, that's coming alongside of us and saying, hey, you know what? You should try this as a dad. You should try this as a husband. You know, this is going to be really helpful in your relationships at work. This is going to be a great way to reach out to your neighbors. And it's the helper of the Holy Spirit. Now, please hear this and please know this, is you can't live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples, is this is actually a good thing. I'm going away, but I'm sending the Spirit. Spirit, that third member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he's gonna help you. Maybe tonight you're exhausted by the Christian life. Do you ever get there? And I've been trying, and the harder I try, the more I mess it up, you know? The more I tell myself to be patient, the more angry I get. And the list goes on and on and on. It's not by power, it's not by might, it's by the Spirit. We focus on walking in the Spirit. What's the Spirit telling you tonight? We're all gonna go out of here in just a few minutes. What's the Spirit saying? He's the one walking alongside to help. Also the Spirit in verse 17 is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Catch this, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. It's impossible to understand, know, and apply the truth of Scripture without the Spirit of God. Growing up in a Christian home, I was exposed to the Word of God on a daily basis. Went to a Christian school, and it largely went right over my head. And it was when I fell in love with Christ and began to experience the Spirit of God in my life that the Scripture began to make sense. And as you're reading the scripture, whether it's coming to a Wednesday night Bible study or reading God's word on your own or listening to a sermon be taught, pray, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me in truth? Would you help me to to understand the world cannot receive? And the end of verse 17 says, he dwells with you and will be in you. So before you know Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God's with you, showing your need for Christ. Can you look back on your life before you're Christian and see that the Spirit of God is with you? I can look back and see how the Spirit of God was with me as a child, even when I had a hard heart. And the Spirit of God had been with the disciples through this three years of being with Jesus. But here's a new relationship. The Spirit of God's going to be in you. A relationship with God goes from being external to internal. Until Christ died and rose again, the Spirit of God could not dwell inside the disciples because they were sinful. Their sin hadn't been dealt with. But when their sin was dealt with on the death and the resurrection of Christ, then the Spirit of God could come inside of them. We know from 1 Corinthians that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The moment that you receive Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God is in you. What a glorious thing. The internal work of the Spirit can go far more than anything that's external. Verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. God's not going to lead us helpless in this Christian life. He's going to send us the Holy Spirit to help us. The sixth thing that we can look at that can cause our hearts to not be troubled is we enjoy the Father's love. A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. I believe in verse 19, Jesus is speaking of his resurrection. He's saying, you're not going to see me, and then you're going to see me. 
I'm going to be buried for three days, then I'm going to rise again. And when you see me, you're going to live also. And because of the death and the resurrection of Christ, we live, we're alive tonight. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's a lot to take in. It's a short verse. Let's try to break it down. So at the resurrection, they're going to know that Jesus is in the Father, and that you in me, that the disciples are in Jesus, but also that Jesus is in them. That's the power of the gospel. Isn't that good news? We understand that Jesus is in the Father, but we also understand that we're in Jesus. We belong to Jesus. We're in Christ Jesus. You know, I've got a little post-it in my Bible, but, but you can't see it. I'll show it to you. Wednesday night treat, okay? Here's my little, my little post-it inside my Bible. I just gave away my secret. Don't tell the other services, okay? But when I close it up, it's in my Bible. You, you would never see it. In the same way, we're in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is saying you're going to understand that. But also the glory is Christ is in us. So we know the Spirit's in us, but also Christ is in us. Colossians 1 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We can be confident that God is going to complete the good work that he started. Why? Because he's in us. We're his project. We're his poem. We're his masterpiece. He's in us. In verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, this is deep. Hopefully we can track with this. Once again, we see the importance of keeping God's word. If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. And then the one who keeps his commandments will be loved by the Father. And then as we're loved by the Father, I will love him and manifest myself to him, where God is revealing himself to us. By being obedient to God's word, you put yourself in a place where you can receive his love and learn more about Christ. It seems like always this time of year, I get a little bit nostalgic. Do you? I kind of start to think about the events of the year. And it's all a blur, and it's like, whoa, lots of pizza, coffee, all this stuff. And Okay, what, what was the meaningful things that happened through, through this year? I've been asking myself, what did I learn more about God? What did I learn more about, about Jesus? And isn't that what we really desire as we go into 2014? I want to learn more about Jesus. I want Jesus to manifest himself to me. I want to enjoy the love of the Father, enter into to that place. And as we look at disobedience in our lives, what's it keeping us from? It's keeping us from that f close fellowship. It's keeping us from that love and enjoying that love. It's keeping us from the Father manifesting his love to us. There's many times in teaching the scriptures that words are difficult to find for the depth of the truth and the depth of knowing what it feels like to be loved by the Father. And I don't want anybody to misunderstand tonight. The first commandment of God is to believe and be saved and be in Christ. And that's when the Father begins to pour out his love on us. We're accepted because we're, we're in Jesus Christ. Because you can read a verse like this and you can start to go, well, you know, I've, I've messed up here and I've messed up there, and that's true. But the first and greatest is believing in Christ. The greatest way that we can love God is trust who he is and receive him by faith. But I pray that for all of us, 
that we would be experiencing the Father's love, that you'd have that security when everything else is spinning out of control in your life, you can rest at night and go, man, I'm loved by God. I don't have to have a troubled heart. I don't have to have a heart that's filled with anxiety and commotion because I'm loved by my Father. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. This is the third time obedience is mentioned. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So God desires for his dwelling to be upon in us. He's preparing a place for us, but he also wants to be at home in our hearts and in our lives. So what kind of home is my heart for Christ? And that'll bring us to a place of confession, won't it? And repentance, saying, Lord, I know that this, this, and this, it's not a good home for you. So would you forgive me? And I want these things to be cleansed out of my life. Verse 24, he who doesn't love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit. So without a doubt, we know that the helper, the one who comes alongside to help, is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. He'll teach you all things. There, once again, we find that the Spirit of God is the ultimate teacher. More than anything else, you need the Holy Spirit. Pastors, teachers, Christian authors can be used by God, but they can't even become close to the Spirit of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God is enough. You don't need me. You don't need any other pastor screecher. A pastor can come alongside and, and teach the God's Word, but you've got the Word of God and you've got the Spirit of God. You don't need anything to be a mediator in between that. And that's our prayer for you as a pastoral staff us included, is we want you to walk with Christ, to you to be able to study the word, to hear the voice of the shepherd, to have the spirit of God teach you. And we know if we think something's the spirit of God and it doesn't line up with the word of God, then my spirit got it wrong. You with me? And also the spirit will bring things back to remembrance. Have you ever had the spirit of God put a verse in your heart that you didn't even remember? You were reading your Bible journaling, memorizing some verses, but had long gone out the other ear, the other side of the brain, and then all of a sudden in the midst of trial or difficulty or God wants you to share with someone else, the Spirit of God brings it back to remembrance. You be faithful to put it in and God will be faithful to bring it back to mind at just the right time when you need it. My pastor growing up, his, his wife died in a car accident, and then years later, his daughter died in a car accident. And when his wife died in the car accident, he was, he was pretty young. He was in his late 20s, and they were going up to go skiing, go, go snow skiing, got in an accident, and she was gone. And the Lord spoke Jeremiah 29, 11 into his heart. And that's before this verse was very popular and in cards and all those things. It says, for I know the thoughts I think towards you, that of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And he'd never remembered memorizing it, but he was a man of the word. He was a man that poured God's word into his heart and his life. And that verse was there when he needed it. 
And that's the power of the word. You put the power of the word in and the Holy Spirit will bring it back to remembrance just at that moment when you need it. We go on to verse 27 and this is our seventh reason why we don't have a troubled heart. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus leaves us with peace as he will be crucified, resurrected, and ascended. And notice he says, it's my peace. And it's not the kind of peace that the world gives. The world's peace is based on circumstances. It's earthly. The peace that he gives is based heavenly. It hit me today in thinking about this. Here Jesus is the one person in the room that should not have peace, that should not have Uh, this place of tranquility, but he's at absolute peace, even though it's difficult because he knows where he's going. And he's saying, I've got peace, guys, and I'm handing this peace off to you. The peace that God gives is peace with God. When we're in Christ, we can go to bed knowing our sins are forgiven. It's not based on me. It's based on the finished work of Christ. It's peace with God, but it's also the peace of God to know that God has any particular difficulty that we're going through. I think of the peace of God like this. With young kids, I've got a three-year-old and a a one-year-old. There's times where they fall down, they get a black eye, you name it, it can happen. And I can't sit down with them and explain to them all of the ramifications of what has happened and will happen. I can't give them a peace based on understanding. But one of the things that's nice with little kids that you can't do with older kids is you can just pick them up and hold them, say, oh, it's going to be all right, and sing them a little song and do a little whoop, you know, and all this stuff. And before you know it, they're holding on to dad, and they have the peace that surpasses understanding. They don't get it necessarily, all the reasons why, but it's a closeness of relationship. And that's what Jesus is offering us is the peace of God and peace with God. And we finish up the chapter here in verse 28, going to verse 31. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Jesus is excited to be reunited with the glory with the Father. Saying, guys, if you knew how great this is going to be, you'd be rejoicing that I get to go be with the Father. And now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Again, the place of fulfilled prophecy, building our faith. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. I wonder what that was like for the disciples. This is permanent. Something's changing here. You're not going to see me. I'm going away. You can't come where I'm going. I'm not going to talk with you much any longer. Hey, but be a good cheer. We got eternity together. The Holy Spirit's coming, coming to help you. You've got a job to do. In verse 30, it says, The ruler of this world, which is Satan, is coming, and Jesus says, He has nothing in me. Satan brings his full on assault against Christ, but he can't touch Christ. The attack of Satan didn't defeat the plan of God. In fact, it fulfilled the plan of God. In verse 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me command, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Here was the mission that Jesus came to fulfill, that the world knows that he loves the Father. 
that the world sees and understands how wonderful the Father is. This can be our marching orders as well, that we say, I just simply want the world to know that I love the Father, and I want to get up and do his command. And Jesus rises in surrender, and he does the command. And this ends the Last Supper. We know from the other Gospels that they stood and and sang a song of praise, a hymn of praise, and now they go out to the Garden of the Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to spend the evening praying. So 15, 16, and 17, Jesus expresses to his disciples after leaving the upper room before he gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So don't let your heart be troubled. Seven reasons why. The first is we're going to heaven. What trouble do we have in heaven? Absolutely none. Whatever you're going through that's not so fun, right? It's only temporary. Good news, we're going to heaven. We know the Father right now. The Father's been revealed to us. We've got a job to do. God wants to use us. We have the privilege of prayer. Are you praying in the name of Jesus? We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's our helper. We enjoy the Father's love. We have his peace. May we enter into these by faith. It's one of them, one thing to know this intellectually, to study it. It's another thing to enter in by faith. Let's go back to verse one really quickly. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let's stand together.